0: Welcome, comrades, friends, tonight's class, People's School, Marxist Lenin's Studies. It is September 3rd, Thursday evening. Tonight we're going to continue and finish the excellent pamphlet called the Moscow Trials from the memoirs of Sam Darcy, D-A-R-C-Y, who was the National Committee of the uh, American Communist Party at the time. He was the head of the party youth wing, for so the Young Workers League, YWL, and he was a delegate to the Comintern in Moscow. And he was at the trials and he wrote this memoir, and we're reading it tonight.
1: Trotsky lived in Oslo, Norway at that time. He was a man of unrivaled ego as his mass influence in the Soviet Union fell away. He compensated for it by increasing insistence on his own greatness and, by contrast, on Stalin's, quote, littleness, unquote. In Trotsky's lexicon, Stalin shed the, quote, dim glow, unquote, of a weak candle. He was a dull wit. He was pedestrian. But Trotsky wasn't alone in this. There were many. Anyone who stood within the circle of brilliant light shed by Lenin was able to associate himself with his teachings and those of Marx were a lesser or greater mantle of greatness in the eyes of the masses. But some of these were really small people who lived entirely by reflecting Lenin's glow. They had little or none of their own. Yet the less they had, the greater their vanity on these. Trotsky played an intriguing tune. Many of those who became leading actors in the treasonable plots and conspiracies were Trotskyites. When Trotsky was fighting Lenin during the latter's life, many had lost confidence in the new world being built. Many were newcomers to the movement who were flattered by the attentions they received, saw opportunist shortcuts to prominence and power, and were cajoled by the opposition to join. Typical of this was one Arnold, who later participated in several criminal acts, including one attempt to murder Molotov. During his trial, he told how he first joined the Russian Orthodox Church in Tsarist times. Then during stay in the United States, he became a Mason. Then he joined the Lutherans, and on his return to Russia after the revolution, he joined the Trotskyites. In each instance, he was asked for his motives, and invariably, he said that he wanted to, quote, mix in better society, unquote. The leaders of the Trotskyite and right-wing groups were already in a, quote, better society, unquote. Some of them had held leading posts in the government and industry, but they had once stood, quote, equally, unquote, in the circle around Lenin, and they watched Stalin's rise with envious jaundiced eyes. Piatikov, one of the leading conspirators, later told how Trotsky played it. In many hours of discussion, he had said to Piatikov, quote, Who is this giant that he stalks among you as if you were pygmies? You are small not because he is big, but because you accept to be small. You have not cut the umbilical cord that ties you to his navel. Stand up like giants yourselves and see how Stalin will strike. Halfway measures are no good. Endless talk and discussion just proves you indecisive. Stalin must be removed physically. Then you can all rise to power. You must act like big men. Stalin must be destroyed now, etc., etc. As I said in the courtroom during the trial, and later Piotrkov tell the story of Trotsky working on him, it kept occurring to me that Piotikov could not have read Shakespeare, for in his play Julius Caesar, that master of character unfolds the same base motives played on by Cassius, who was ensnaring the willing, though piously protesting, Brutus into his murderous cabal. Said Cassius, quote, I was born as free a Caesar. So were you. We both have fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. This man has now become a god, and Cassius a wretched creature, and must bend his body if Caesar but carelessly but nod on ye gods, it doth amaze me. A man of such a feeble temper should so get the start of the majestic world, and bear the palm alone. Why, man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Men at some times are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars but in ourselves that we are underlings, Brutus and Caesar. What should be in the Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours?' Thus, Trotsky won the petty connivers one by one. Of course, they could not come to the people with their greed of personal power and avarice alone. To that, they confessed only as they stood in crushed defeat in the criminal dock. So Trotsky also gave them a program. Socialist construction was really Stalinist construction. It was destroying Russia's economy, not building it. Look how lacking the people are in consumer goods. By the end of 1934, there would be a complete collapse and famine, as there can be no socialism built in one country, so there can be no counter-revolution in one country. He then told them of his close agreements for, quote, cooperation, unquote, with the German Nazis. It seemed to work for a time. Times were hard in the Soviet Union during that first five-year plan. Not only plain people, but leaders lost faith or never had faith in the path that they had taken, and many fell away. And Trotsky's agents and their German partners found ever increasing circles of conspirators as allies, the Radek Group and all its followers, the Bukharin Group, the Tomsky Group, Chatskin lomon Group, the remnants of the Zenoviev Kamenev group, the Yagoda group, the Bukitchovsky group. One after the other they fell worm eaten rotten plums into the net of Trotskyite Nazi conspiracy. Their numbers grew to the tens of thousands, and with it their confidence mounted to bolder, even bolder deeds.
0: As you're reading this, comrade, in all my years in the communist movement, I've seen people like this. I want you to know that. I've seen people, even in our own party, who want to show how much they know more than the leadership. I've seen this, comrade. Uh, It's always from newer people into our movement. I've seen this in the old party when I was in the CPUSA. And it's a form of envy, It's a form of putting yourself first and the collective second. It's very dangerous. It comes out of individualism. And everything that was written in this period, at that time, I have seen in my short time in the communist movement, since 1968. I saw it in the New Left. I see it in the Occupy movement. Occupy is a personification of this where each individual wants to show they're more knowledgeable and know how to deal with the situation than the collective. And during the Occupy movement and during similar movements today, I see it. I see it in the Black Lives Matter movement. I definitely see it. I definitely see it in Antifa. This individualism, this attempt to not look at the whole of what we're trying to build, but of how we as an individual can be a big frog in a small pond. Now with that, is there any questions that I could open up to?
2: Can you speak to Trotsky being understood historically as a disciple of Lenin? Trotsky makes this attempt to tie himself to Lenin and make himself the upholder of Lenin's legacy. Can you just talk about the historical implications of that?
0: I find this very similar. I hate to be biblical. But go back to the period of Moses and the Ten Commandments. One should study that, the human relationship. It's the same thing. Each person try to be connected to the leader, in that case Moses. If you read the story about Julius Caesar that's in this text, everyone wants to be connected to Caesar, and they put themselves in an equal opposition to Caesar or Moses or Stalin. I see it as a human drama. And why do the Trotskyites do it? Of course, it's obvious. They always wanted to bring the revolution to where they thought it should be. Remember that before the revolution happened, Trotsky was with the Mensheviks. Let's not forget that. He was a very Johnny-come-lately to the revolution. Let's not forget that Stalin had very, very numerous occasions where he disagreed strongly with Trotsky, and that is not discussed by Trotsky's followers. They want to be anointed as continuing the revolution that Lenin started, and I think it's obvious to any person in history that it was Stalin and the rest of the Politburo and Central Committee that followed Lenin's path, not The intellectuals, not the intelligentsia. Remember who were the intellectuals in the leadership. On the left, there was Trotsky, and on the right, there was Bukharin. Remember that. They were the main intellectuals in that group of three or four. We read a little more. Continue.
1: In July of 1935, when I arrived in Moscow, the first five-year plan was already completed, but the rules governing its period of operation had not yet been lifted. The All-Soviet Planning Commission had not yet submitted its report to the All-Soviet Union Congress, and the All-Soviet Congress had not yet decided how much of a dividend they could declare to the people. Everybody was still on rations. Good spot-on ration cards were at reasonable prices, but anyone who wanted to buy above rations could do so at government stores, but they had to pay very high prices. People had lots of money, for wages were high, and a few indeed were those who did not earn above the minimums. But there were not enough commodities to buy with those wages. And so while money was plentiful among the people, they were still wearing clothes which were bought one or more years previously. Household furnishings were spares, and the supply of food limited the Trotskyites for spreading rumors all over the country that the availability of money was meaningless since the money itself would soon lose all value. It was widespread. Even I, as a foreigner, heard it expressed in my moving about the city. The delay in the improving conditions after the conclusion of the first five-year plan seemed to confirm the Trotskyites' prognostications of the economic disaster for the country, for quote, if we successfully complete the five-year plan, why are there no benefits from it, unquote. In September of 1936, the conspirators received their first blow. The government announced that the results of the first five-year plan were sufficiently clear so that even without all the Soviet Union Congress, meeting to certain improvements could be made immediately. Some things, especially bread, vegetables, and certain other foodstuffs, were released from rationing. Prices in these stores were cut on average of 40% at one blow, and many stores, which had previously been limited to serving those who wanted to buy on ration cards, were declared to be, quote, open stores, and quote, that is serving everyone and selling above the maximum allowed on the ration cards. Soon after, I began to realize that something was happening for the Moscow Papers began publishing letters received from anonymous readers, which said, in effect, quote, we have become involved in some anti-Soviet activities. We realize we are wrong. If we voluntarily report our crime to the government, will we be punished? Where do we go to report, This was a curious phenomenon. At first, only a few such letters were published, and each day more and more until hundreds of them had been published on New Year's. Another big blow was handed to the conspirators, all rationing throughout the country was abolished, and prices were lowered another 40%. When the rationing was first lifted in September, scenes in the gastronomes, Moscow's huge grocery stores, and the department stores and other merchandising establishments were like Macy's basement on an exceptionally big bargain day. People stood in line waiting to buy with huge wads of chauvinettes. It's notes of ten rubles each, or over, in their hands. At first, only simple people came, workers who told of how they had been approached to slow production in the factories, or to do their work badly, or to make faulty instruments, though some of them were picked up who told of groups that had been formed for purposes of organizing sabotage. The procedure under Soviet justice is much slower than ours before a man can be indicted. There are considerable hearings by the prosecution authorities at which evidence has taken and the law examined on Lee after the prosecution and authorities have assembled a complete legal case is the accused indicted for the crime and brought into court for trial. This delayed matters so that it was not until August of 1936 that the first of the trials occurred. The story of the trials is known to the world, and the court's stenograms are in most American public libraries, and its political aspects of the trial showed that not only the German Nazis corrupted and made part of their espionage machine considerable numbers of French, British, American, and traitorous elements of other countries, but also in the Soviet Union, and on a scale that far exceeded anything that we could imagine, the people in their pay Reached from simple miners who got a few extra rubles for their trouble to steal dynamite or to turn off a ventilation system at the wrong time, to people in such high places as Pyedikov, who was assistant commissar of heavy industry, a position of such great power that it gave him control of all the vast basic industries of the country, mining, steel, railroad, and so on.
0: Any questions on what we just read? Since you have a long history of commuting to the former Soviet Union, a number of times As an eyewitness, how much do you really consider that the Soviet Union was a highly industrialized country in terms of using quality standards in the West? Do you think the Soviet Union successfully consummated large scale industrialization of the whole country, including the former Soviet republics?
3: I would consider it incredibly successful because, as the sentence earlier suggested, something like, in five years, We achieved what the United States with more naturally well positioned natural resources accomplished in 50 years, we accomplished in 5 years.
0: I want to add to that. I was there in 76, 30 years at least after this was set up. And I saw an industrialized society in most of the urban areas. But remember, the rural areas of the United States, even at present, is very rustic. The areas of West Virginia, the Blue Mountains, that area, has been notorious for being behind the rest of the urban areas of the country. And so it was similar to the Soviet Union at the time. Outside of the big cities, it was less developed. But, here's the but, the industrialization that was done by Roosevelt with the Tennessee Valley Authority. That was nothing in comparison to what was done in the Soviet Union during Stalin's time. They had complete electrification. In fact, the slogan of Lenin was electrification is modern communism. That's what he used the term. I'm paraphrasing him. And so electrification, building dams, power... Which built factories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The factories built a working class. People went from being peasants to workers, so the working class blew up tremendously in numbers. I saw that they were like 10 years behind the United States culturally. In fact, in '76, when I was there, they were just starting supermarkets. Can you believe that? Supermarkets started here in the early '60s and the late 50s 58 on and here it was 76 they were just bringing in supermarkets so they weren't that far behind at all even on social
1: services what are we reading now in its original aspect the extent of their atrocity staggered the imagination and as a note here i would like to just point out this part is extremely important this is one of the most useful paragraphs in the entire pamphlet They wrecked trains loaded with red army men, killing scores. They callously hid dynamite in children's playgrounds so that it blew up, killing many. They caused 1,500 wrecks on railroads by such tricks as sending out locomotives with faulty pressure gauges so that the locomotives and the engineers were blown to bits. While people were short of consumer commodities in the cities, they routed freight carts loaded with goods to a railroad siding so that over $50 million worth of goods rotted. They organized holdups of banks, and they made attempts on the lives of party leaders, some of which, as in the case of Kirov and some lesser-known persons, were successful, and many of which, as in the cases of the attempt on Molotov's life and Stalin's life, were unsuccessful. I doubt whether there will ever be erased from my mind. The memory of the scene during the Radik piatikov trial, when about a score of workers from the Kamarovo mine explosions came to Moscow some with legs shot off, some with arms gone, some blind, all crippled in one way or another, demanding seats at trial so that they might confront the defendants with the results of their callous calamity. Soviet justice, which abhors, quote, scenes, unquote, organizes everything so that procedures would be smooth and quiet, denied them admission. And for two whole days, these victims picketed the courtroom. The callousness of some of the defendants was almost beyond belief. Kamenev, who was so, quote, clever, unquote, said that, Quote, Heads are peculiar and that they do not grow on again." Unquote. As an argument for the assassination of Stalin or Radek, who, while telling of the development of their policy and changes from time to time, explained that they found that quote, "...killing individuals was child's play when so much was at stake. It was necessary to go over to mass murder in order to create a panic in the country." Unquote. And as this most distasteful man finished saying such a monstrous thing, he paused for dramatic effect squeezing the lemon into his tea, which court attendants provided witnesses so that they might refresh themselves, and looked over his audience to see if he created the effects that a man of such quote, objective greatness, unquote, should create. These petty souls satisfied their egos by distributing portfolios for the new government. They planned to set up with the overthrow of the Soviet government, many of them strutting into the courtroom with grotesque burlesques of serious statesmen. Day after day of each of the trials went by, Probably more shocking than anything else was the unfolding of the story of how they entered the employ of the Nazi government, Raddick telling of his deals with the members of the Nazi embassy in Moscow, and boastfully explaining how he had refused to deal with lesser Nazi government officials and insisted upon negotiating with the most important of them. Even while testifying from the prisoner's dock, the ego of many of the defendants kept intruding into the dreadful story that was unfolding. Raddick, Pyotrkov, Sokolnikov. And others kept asserting that he was the one and not the other who succeeded in initiating the contacts with this or that Nazi big shot, or that he was the one who first made this or that analysis, etc., etc. It was gruesome. And Lurie told how he had received Franz Weitz, who came as a representative of Himmler, who at that time was the leader of the SS, the Nazi Black Shirt Guard. Piatikov told how the Nazi government provided him with a special plane to make a visit to Trotsky in Oslo, etc., etc. Some of those who played a leading part in the conspiracy either could not stand the humiliation of having become Nazi agents or the humiliation of going through a trial and committed suicide. These included Lamendus and Tomsky. I'm
0: going to give a paraphrase to everything that was just read. United States Ambassador Joseph Davies to the Soviet Union, his memoirs called Mission to Moscow. Everybody should be writing this down now. He verified these dynamite bombings of sabotage. He verified this, he saw these things. This is the American ambassador, not a communist functionary. What he was describing, and which has not been described so far in this discussion, is the term fifth column. This is a term not familiar to young people. Fifth column. It was used quite useful, and it was used many times during this period in Europe. The Nazis came into areas in France and areas they occupied. They had their own people there. They prepared the way for the Nazi invasion. The fifth column term comes from the Spanish Civil War, where the Franco forces were boasting that they had one column here, one column in Barcelona, and all over the country. But there was a fifth column, and the fifth column was inside Madrid. Madrid was the center of the republic, the bastion of the republic. And the fascists say that we had a fifth column inside the city of Madrid. That's how strong it was. So that term, fifth column, was seen as sort of a Trojan horse, if you know the history of Troy, the Trojan horse, where they brought the horse inside the city of Troy, and then the horse was hidden Greek soldiers from Athens or Sparta, and they came in, opened the gates, and they're the ones that helped destroy Troy. The fifth column, the Trojan horse. And that is important to know, this, comrades, because every country in Europe had a fifth column. Norway, in fact, in one of the Scandinavian countries, they were called Quislings. You should look up this term, Quislings. These were the people in one of the Nordic countries that was pro-fascist from the inside of the government undermined the country. In the United States, that term was common at the time, fifth column, and the only country that did not have a fifth column in Europe was the Soviet Union, and the reason they claim it didn't is because they were all taken care of at the trial. I just want to mention that to everybody as an added historical understanding of the period we're talking about. The story that the Trotskyites gave, oh, these are innocent people. Well, of course, how could they be innocent? When Trotsky left the Soviet Union, comrades, guess where he was welcomed? He was welcomed by Mussolini into fascist Italy. He was wined and dined by the Mussolini government. That's not my view. It's right there in the bourgeois media, New York Times, of that period of time. You look up New York Times, you'll see it all there on the front page. That's where it is. It's not communist sources. These are all capitalist bourgeois sources that are admitting this, that Trotsky was wined and dined by the fascists. In Italy, all communist publications were banned, except the works of Leon Trotsky. How do you explain that? Ask your Trotskyite friends. How do they explain that? So now we're going to open up to Rand Robin.
2: He's talking about these fifth column type elements within BLM and within our own party. I was hoping he could elaborate on that a little more.
0: I wasn't talking about fifth column in Black Lives or in our own party. Definitely not. I was talking about individualism in the left.
2: You mentioned the different individualistic tendencies and different formations. Would you say that they're purely contrarian, or would you say that it's a construed ideology of individualism?
0: It doesn't have to do with being contrary, no. It's an attempt to push oneself above the collective and put the spotlight on the individual and take it away from the party leadership. It's common. I've seen it so many times. I wouldn't even say it's malicious, definitely not malicious. It's just part of individualism. Like, here I am. I'm over here, everybody. That kind of
2: thing. Every time I hear about Trotsky's betrayal being more blatant, like meeting with Mussolini, I just get more confused about Trotskyism in general.
3: I would like to comment that that's kind of the point of Trotskyism. There's this really good document that I suggest everybody read if they have time. It's written by Olgan. Trotskyism, counter-revolution in disguise. And that's just what it is. It's just confusion and counter-revolution in disguise.
0: That book can be ordered on New Outlook Publishers. It's by Moshe Ogan, who was the editor of the Morning Freiheit, which means Morning Freedom in Yiddish. It was the daily Yiddish newspaper in the United States, and the editor was in the Central Committee of the party. His name was Moshe Ogan. I urge people to go to New Outlook Publishers. Thank you.
3: It's really striking and ironic that. You see the same maneuvers being done in Cuba when they're trying to assassinate and throw dirt on the Castro regime and other countries around the globe.
4: It reminds me of the same exact tactics.
2: I admit I don't know as much
4: about Trotsky as I should, so I just want to know what exactly was his angle? Was he just strictly an anti communist? On oh, what exactly was he trying to gain for himself?
0: He considered himself smarter than everybody else, part of the intelligentsia. He was very confident of his writing skills, and he considered himself, should be in the leadership of the country, and that's why he was willing to have the Soviet Union divided the same way France was divided, the same way Yugoslavia was divided by the Nazis, and they set up puppet governments in Croatia, in Yugoslavia, and in France, the Vichy government, Vichy France, and the same thing they wanted to do to the Soviet Union, where Trotsky would have his own fiefdom, and so would Bukharin, and that's it. Simple, very simple.
4: One of the comrades has some questions about individualism and how it pertains to what's going on. A lot of people have already seen it, but recently there's this other documentary called Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. It's from 2002, but it goes into depth on individualism and manifestation in the 20th century in Western countries. I was wondering how
3: organized these conspirators were, and was there any other groups that were sabotaging and not associated with this Nazi coalition?
4: There was a whole bunch of different groups going on at this time. Remember, you had Great Britain, you had Japan, you had Germany. The original James Bond, whatever his name was, I forget, there was a real man they based it on. And he didn't do espionage against Germany or anything. He was actually in the Soviet Union in the 20s. The Soviet Union was actually rearming Weimar Germany in the 20s. And this is a forgotten page of history, but the very same officers in World War II on the German side were actually trained in the Soviet Union in the late 20s and the early 30s, where they had special military schools and technology centers. One was for airplanes. One was for tanks. One was for infantry one was for artillery, and one was like a chemical weapons facility. And basically the Soviet Union used German scientists and technology to advance their technology, and they thought they were getting the better end of the deal. But as we see, really, the Germans were infiltrating the Soviet Union at that time. I'm just curious as to why Trotsky hated the anarchists so much when he was also an individualist.
0: Trotsky was an individualist. Anarchists are individualists. That's where the beginning and the end ended. Trotsky was a Bolshevik. He had become one, he previously was a Menshevik, Russian Social Democratic Party, and then he went over to the Bolsheviks right before the revolution. Nothing in common with the anarchists who said they wanted no state. Trotsky was for a strong Bolshevik state, so that's the difference. And remember, Trotsky was involved with putting down the Konstant rebellion on the ship, the battleship, Constant. Remember that. So he was no friend of the anarchists who wanted no government.
2: There was actually footage of Trotsky being welcomed by the fascists in Italy, and I believe that they deemed it that he was going on a quote-unquote vacation. So that sort of gives you a perspective of how chummy he was. During this time before the actual Moscow trials were taking place and the collaborators were putting dynamite in children's playgrounds and and causing trains to go off time and blow up, I'm sure this had to be a rough time in the Soviet Union for the people living there. Was there a sense of people were traitors and people really didn't know who were collaborators? Was there a sense of uneasiness among the people? How did the people receive this collaboration?
0: It was disillusionment. People were questioning whether this experiment was going to get off the ground.
3: They actually posted anonymous letters to newspapers saying, hey, we did something wrong. We were like an anti-Soviet plot and stuff like that. Where can we report them? And will we be forgiven if we confess? If you want to learn more about how the Soviet people felt about Trotsky, there's a great piece by Harry Haywood called Trotsky's Day in Court." Gives a great perspective on it. I don't know who knows about what's going on in Bolivia right now oh. with Bolivian Trotskyites who are conspiring against Eva Morales' party with the coup government.
0: I just want to add to that they do the same thing. It's not just the Trotskyites, it's any of the ultras. We call them ultras in our party. Right, yeah. The Maoists, the people that follow Envojia, they call themselves Hojists, they're big. In Ecuador, they helped get rid of the government in Ecuador, which is now run by neoliberals. They're famous for this. The ultra is famous for working with the right wing in a society, ultimately.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Can you
0: re-explain the fifth column? The fifth column came from the Spanish Civil War. I urge people to verify what I'm saying. Don't just take my word for it. Do some research, comrades. Let's act like communists. Let's do research. It came from the Spanish Civil War from a general who worked with Franco, a fascist general. The quote was, they asked him how many columns, they mean army columns, how many columns do you have in what parts of the country? And he proudly said, we have a column here, a column here, and a column here, and a column here. And then he said, "But we have a fifth column, and the fifth column is inside Madrid itself. People who are waiting to take down the government inside Madrid itself. Do you understand now
3: I don't really see how that relates to the Trojan horse or their ideology. What it means is essentially the fifth column is the advanced part of the fascist force, so essentially the fascist or reactionary force." or the traitors or the opportunists that are within the country, flock to these reactionary and ultra-leftist groups, and that's what the forms the fifth column, to weaken the state before the fascist state. Right, it's very simple.
2: So they're basically not an army provision, they're like a group of citizens.
0: Yes, right, but they mean the same thing. It means the same thing. It's the enemy inside the city of our people same thing it's like a trojan horse that's all
3: so am i to understand that france's surrender to nazi germany was that
4: an outcome of a of fifth, the fifth column operation oh, definitely definitely these days in the tv shows they talk about the amazing german blitzkrieg it's so amazing it defeats everybody in 30 minutes but what they forgot to talk about was that France, this popular front government There was a lot going on in France at the time. The big capitalists, basically their equivalent of the Fords, the Hearst, they both have Nazi medals. Certain portions of the British society as well, I'm not talking about the British fascists, but even like Churchill, they had a backdoor communication with the Nazis. Nazism was the response of the right wing to Bolshevism. That's why they rallied behind this right wing movement.
3: Regarding that? Definitely, it was not the only reason that France fell, but we can see it when Germany invaded, they already had collaborators within the French political system to set up the Vichy French state and all of those politicians that ended up cooperating with the Nazi occupation. And that was their fifth column. And the fifth column, generally with fascism, it's the interborder border capitalist reaction to the advance of Bolshevism and Socialism and the decay of capitalism. These collaborators will many times go against their national interests, even if they are self-described nationalists, to be opportunists and get power and seize power. And that's what mainly forms these fifth columns.
0: Another name for this, Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E, Pierre Laval, L-A-V-A-L, was the head of the Nazi party in France. When the German troops marched in, Laval and his party were pulled in control of different sections of the government in Vichy, the Vichy government. They were responsible for rounding up French Jews and sending them to concentration camps. It was Laval and his people. They were the fifth column in France. Thank you. I think we should adjourn.
2: Thank you. All right, so with that, The meeting is now closed.